This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Carl Truman is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He earned his Master of Arts in the Classics from the University of Cambridge and his PhD in Church History from the University of Aberdeen. Professor Truman has a distinguished and well-known career as both a teacher and an author, having published several books ranging from works on Reformation theology and history to biographies on figures such as John Owen and Martin Luther. More recently, he's the author of the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. That work led to the most recent of his works, and it's that work we discuss today, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Carl Truman, welcome to Thinking in Public. Great to be here, Al. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, very much appreciate you, our friendship through the years, and uh, frankly, the ability to think through so many of the issues that you have uh, so uh, cogently addressed, not only in your first book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self, which uh, can only be described as kind of a, a spectacular success in terms of uh, of starting uh, the, a lot of the most healthy conversations uh, in our midst, but, uh, but in this new book. So uh, you've written on the rise and fall of the modern self. How does this new book, Strange New World, fit into that? Well, in, in part, it's it's something of a precy of the larger book. Ryan Anderson at the Ethics and Public Policy Center contacted me shortly after the longer book had come out and said, could I do something for, uh, for DC staffers, something you could get into the hands of people that they'd read on their commute? He said, nobody's going to read a 400-page book. Uh, at the same time, a lot of pastors- They'll just claim me. they had. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a lot of seem to have claimed they read it since. Yes, right. But uh, I was also contacted by a number of pastors who are saying, "Is it possible to get this material in a form that we could do in in Sunday schools or discussion groups at church?" So the book had a twofold origin. It, it does actually contain some new material. Obviously, I've thought about a few things since the the first book was written, and we had the summer of 2020 between the submission of the manuscript and the publication of the big book, which also raised a lot of new questions. So there's some new material in it as well, but it's really designed to, to be more accessible to the lay person or the busy person who doesn't have time to read a 400-page a book. Well, all 400 pages were well worth the read, but uh, that's even more true in terms of this uh, the shorter work, Strange New World. And you also focus on, uh, I think, what a lot of people would immediately understand and uh, about which they're already uh, very concerned, and that is the the sexual revolution. And uh, these days, um, I guess I, I've just been looking at some of the stuff I've written and, uh, and, and presented uh, in radio academic lectures and uh, the briefing and all the rest. And I've just noted that about 20 years ago, I had to start talking about the sexual revolution in general and the LGBTQ uh, revolution specifically. And uh, we're going to talk about how that happened. But I, I, I want to get back to something that uh, I think is as current as, uh, as anything we could talk about as a, as a headline controversy, and that's the notion of the self. So let's just have some fun here. Uh, you, you entitled your first book, The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self. That implies there is a modern self different than uh, whatever came before. I'm not loading the gun. I'm going to let you shoot it here. But, uh, but th this idea of the self 
is is necessary. I mean, we we assume on good grounds that a part of uh, of the imago dei is the sense of self, a sense of self that dogs and cats and you know tigers don't have, but the human beings do have. So, so what is that self? Well, bottom line is that the self is is self understanding. It, it's how we think and imagine ourselves to be relative to the world around us. Uh, human beings have always had an inner space. We've always had this ability for self reflection. If you if you read the Psalms, the Psalms are full of emotions. They're full of the psalmist reflecting on on who he is where he fits into the world, uh, that he finds himself, how he experiences that world. The key thing, I think, for the modern self is the level of authority we've come to grant to that inner space. I use as an illustration to, to draw this out. Think of transgenderism, which is perhaps the most extreme example of modern right. selfhood we're currently witnessing. If you'd gone to the doctor 150 years ago and, and said you're a, a, a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would have said that's a problem. It's a problem of your mind. We, we need to bring your mind into conformity with your body. If you go to a doctor and say that today, the doctor will say it's a problem. It's a problem of your body. We need to bring your body into conformity with your mind. If you juxtapose those two scenarios, what you see is a culture that has shifted dramatically towards seeing our inner emotions, our inner convictions, our inner psyche as being the foundation of who we are, an external reality as having to bow or conform to that. So the modern self is one that prioritizes inner feelings and is, I would say, dramatically impatient with external authorities, even now the authority of our own body. Or even the reality of the world around us, of which our body yeah. is a part. Yeah. Uh, you know, as as I lecture on this, I often uh, point to this uh, this emergence and redefinition of the word authenticity, because uh, if we had talked about the self as being authentic in any time other than the, in the modern construct, then we would talk about the self rightly aligning uh, itself with objective reality, and as a matter of fact, that's pretty much the 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 standard fare. Uh, of uh, at least the Western understanding of the self, the self in, in, in Western cultures. But this modern idea of authenticity is that the authenticity is grounded only in the self, reflecting on the self uh, in order to uh, project the self. Yes, and you can see this, uh, get good illustrations of this from philosophies of education, of course. Right. I, I went to a British grammar school, very traditional boys' school, and to put it somewhat facetiously, the purpose of my education was the, the school took on board individuals, crushed our individuality, and turned us into members of the team. It's why rugby was important in the winter and cricket in the spring. Team sports, you were part of a team. That was the purpose of education, to, to take little savages and turn us into good members of society's team. Now, of course, the purpose of education is increasingly at least uh, explicitly stated as allowing children to express themselves. I watched a discussion recently on the television about a school attempting to, to reinstate school uniforms. And one of the parents made the comment uh, to the effect of, why can't we let the children express themselves through their clothing? To the teachers at my school, that sentiment would have been incomprehensible. The answer would have been, because that's not the purpose of education. Self-expression is not the purpose of education. It is turning you into part of the team, whereas now education is all about allowing the individual to flourish as the individual. 
And that's a, a reflection of, of the aspirations of, of society relative to, to modern selfhood. You know, uh, one of the uh, modern sociologists of reality uh, refers to uh, the, the, the modern or what we might call after the modern or postmodern sense of reality as a liquid modernity. And uh, I think the self is turning liquid as well. And, and, and we see that with, as you mentioned, the transgender revolution most, most graphically. But we also see it in modern people who seem to invent themselves and reinvent themselves every 24 to 36 months. Uh, you know, you talk about how children dress. Well, we kind of expect, uh, you know, changes in, uh, in, in a sense of the self between, say, ages 10 and 13 and 16. But now we've got 30, 40 and 50 year olds playing this game. Yeah, constantly reinventing themselves. Of course, it's an it's an image projected from in in pop culture. Right. I always think about Madonna in some ways as the as the great harbinger of our present age. She was the great master or, or perhaps mistress, I suppose a better term. Of She's a woman, but the great uh, the the great genius of of reinvention in the seven in in the eighties, nineties, and on into the two thousands. She seemed to have a new image or persona every six to twelve months and marketed herself very effectively. The fashion industry is predicated on us reinventing ourselves with great frequency. One should also add the broader, I think, social framework to this as well, that there is a sense in which uh, you pointed to liquid modernity a few moments ago. The self is liquid also because the world in which we live is constantly changing. It's, it's not always our choice to reinvent ourselves. Actually, the, the old external markers by which we would have identified ourselves and had a sense of self, they're constantly changing now. You know, the institutions yeah. that we look to for right. solidity are no longer solid. Robert Gordon, the uh, uh, very well-known economist, uh, has made the point, and, and he's not directly addressing what we're discussing here, but it, it's directly relevant, and uh, discusses the fact there had to be certain technological means of uh, allowing this kind of uh, of liquid modernity or this, this, this kind of very uh, flexible uh, authenticity centered self. And one of those is the ability to move. Uh, so in other words, if you're grounded in a village, it's really hard to reinvent yourself every six months uh, because everyone in the village knows exactly who you are. They know who your mom and dad are and, and all, all the relations. But we now live in a society in which people are ripped out of that and, and frankly can, can not only reinvent themselves every two or three years or whatever they choose, but they can actually just move and become someone else in their own minds. Yeah, the whole world is kind of Alaska now. You can disappear right. into the the old self can disappear into the into the wilderness. And clearly, I'm an immigrant. You can tell by my accent. I, I'm not from uh, Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. Yeah, I too am, uh, am the beneficiary, I suppose, of modernity in that sense. In that I've come to America and and been a very different person than I would have been if I'd stayed in the United Kingdom. Technology absolutely facilitates this this liquidity of the self at at every level. And again, I, I mentioned transgenderism earlier as the most extreme right. example of, of the modern self. Transgenderism is only really imaginable in a technological world. The doctor of 150 years ago had no choice but to give the answer that the problem is your mind, not your body, because there was nothing he could do with the body. Now we tricked ourselves, I think, into thinking our bodies are just stuff. We can manipulate our bodies and, and turn a man into a woman. Well, again. Uh, as you well know and, and affirm, the limitations of that are, are, are pretty clear. And, and the most fundamental limitation on that is it can't change the genetic code. 
And so I was in a debate a few years ago and I simply said, look, I, 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 it doesn't even really matter uh, in, in one sense how our debate turns out. Because uh, if, if indeed uh, this society uh, uh, you know, is to pass away and some successor society were to come and dig up uh, an archaeological dig in our graves, it will show XX and XY. And long after the gravestones are long removed, it's going to say XX and XY. And uh, so, I mean, that, that's just been so much a part of it. You know, another thing that strikes me, and you, your own personal you know, background, uh, especially in the UK, uh, can speak to this. Um, the more I think about this, the more I think that the, the idea of the self follows a narrative that especially emerged, and you could say even in revolutionary uh, uh, colonial North America. But beyond that, especially uh, in, the, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when someone who might be, say, fixed in a class system in Europe could come to the United States and with enough ingenuity, enough money, or just frankly, enough, uh, you know, uh, self-confidence could kind of uh, all of a sudden emerge as uh, count this or uh, or the Earl of that <laughs> yes. in a way that couldn't happen in Europe. So we live in a society that kind of hyper uh, accentuates all this. Yes, I, I agree. I think the old class system that I grew up with and that sort right. of, if anything has messed me up, I think it's the British class system. Uh, <laughs> uh, the old British class system was, was kind of fixed because originally it was tied to land, of course. Right. Going right. back to the geographical thing, the, the British class system was, was very fixed. And as that has broken down, as we've had immigration to the United Kingdom, or as people have emigrated to the United States, that kind of reinvention, that kind of social mobility all plays into all plays into the way we we intuit the world and i think intuitively now we think of the world as a place of of obvious change of obvious fragility of obvious liquidity in a way that our ancestors would not have done and america's a great harbinger of that and of course one of the ironies is that's not an unqualified bad thing we, we like freedom we like social mobility but all of these things also come with with challenges and drawbacks as well yeah, and that's kind of where I'm headed because uh, there's a sense in which the the that American ethos, uh, and you might say the modern ethos, was about liberating people from uh, unjust constraints. And so the fact that that and and by the way, Americans love to watch Downton Abbey, but they all think they would be living upstairs. <laughs> of you know? course, right. my ancestors were definitely downstairs yeah. or well, out in the fields. The vast majority would have been downstairs, or or worse, you know, in in, yeah. in terms of economic location. And, and so there's a sense in which there's a just impulse of, of liberation, but that has been now extended without any limits, including the limits of ontology, of, of, of yeah. male and female. Yes, I think you're right. It's when you go back to the, the founders, no, there's, there's a huge debate about to what extent were the, Christian, uh, were the founders Christians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. One thing I think you can say about the founders is that all of them had shared in common some moral vision. Right. They assumed that there was a moral structure to the universe. They might have disagreed on whether that was grounded in the Trinitarian God right. or a Unitarian God or a deistic God. There may have been some theological differences, but as far as I read them, they, they share a common moral vision. And that makes the pursuit of you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it means that has a shape. Right. They, they, they saw that as having limits, as having a shape. The problem is, of course, once you reach a point in society where that shared moral vision 
has been so attenuated or has even disappeared that there is no political, in the true sense of the word, consensus on it, then yeah. life, liberty, and particularly the pursuit of happiness, right. become horribly, horribly subjective and plastic things and, and basically subject to, to who shouts loudest, right. who and, has and their hands the, uh, on the levers of power. Yeah. And from the materialist interpreters of the Constitution in the early 20th century to, fr frankly, Marxism in all its forms and current critical theory, the, uh, the explicit claim is that uh, ending those previous moral agreements or that moral consensus uh, is exactly what's necessary to liberate humanity. Yeah, and that's the, the big problem with, I think, all species of critical theory, that critical theory is, is exactly, we would say back in the UK, critical theory does exactly what it says on the tin. It's critical. It's really a, a process of uh, breaking down, of tearing down. It doesn't have a positive vision. And that's why when you, you, know, you look at the Black Lives Matter webpage and you try to find out what the positive vision that's being posited is, there isn't really one. They can tell you where injustice lies, but they can't tell you what justice looks like. Uh, because, of course, as soon as you, you prescribe what justice looks like... It's someone's understanding of justice. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you render yourself liable to right. critical theoretical approaches. Uh, right, and so that, that's I the agree. reason why people need to understand that when you talk about, for instance, critical race theory, the R is arbitrary. It's critical theory, and you could insert just about anything, including, as we will discuss, uh, sex and gender. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's the, the approach of critical theory that's particularly toxic, and by the way, was intended to be. You know, yeah. critical theory was never intended to be constructive. Yeah. It was intended merely to be destructive on the way to uh, something else to be negotiated in the future. Yeah, on the way to a utopia, which by definition can't be defined, but right. we'll know it when we see it kind of thing. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, without taking this too far, I would argue that a lot of the critical theorists actually are, are Marxists without a utopia. There, there, there is no utopia because it's kind of a surrender to the fact that all that's left is what Karl Bar uh, Marx himself referred to as the, the ruthless critique. Yes, and this is why, I mean, George Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist, uh, talked about the Frankfurt School as the Grand Hotel Abyss. Right, that he that's saw exactly the, right. The, yeah. the critical theorists really as staring into a great black hole. And, and Theodore Adorno, one of the founders right. of critical theory, I, one of the things I appreciate about him is his pessimism, if you like. And, and his Augustinian, honesty. I can feel yep. some sympathy yep. with yep. his pessimism. <laughs> yes, and uh, and as an Augustinian, uh, uh, shaped by uh, uh, Christian theology and that Augustinian tradition, uh, we can understand the rejection of a utopia. But oh, yeah. but but uh, the biblical the biblical promise is something better than utopia. Yeah, yeah, yes, and that's where ultimately an Augustinian is is pessimistic for this age, but has to be hopeful for the that's eschaton. Right. <laughs> And confident, yes, and yes. and and grounded. All the yeah, things yeah. that uh, the modern self are not. Uh, you know, I think of uh, you know a, 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 a suggestion that uh, that the self now has to be preceded by something. And so you have Michael Sandel, you know, with the encumbered and the unencumbered self, or you have the uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor with the the notion of the buffered self. So it, you can't really even talk about the self anymore. Uh, now you've got to talk about what variety of the self some modern thinker is bringing forward. 
Yes, and there, and that's where you get into the the plethora of options we have out there. Um, do we define ourselves in terms of race? Do we define ourselves in terms right. of sexual desire? Do we define ourselves in terms of our nationality? I mean, you you can pick and choose now exactly how you want to identify yourself because we've lost that, that common grounding, I think, in the public space that allows us to feel a commonality with our fellow men and women. If I am asked the most surprising uh, development of, uh, of, say, the last 20 or 30 years, but particularly of the last decade, I would say that the most stunning development is the jump of uh, so many of these ideologies and critical theories in particular uh, into public discourse. Uh, because as, as I was a first-year college student, I had two uh, cultural Marxists as professors. They were both very young that uh, they had both been uh, been trained by Frankfurt School uh, theorists, and uh, one of them at Berkeley, and uh, they just showed up, you know, on the college campus, and, and were filled with this. And the the first thing I thought was, there is no way that that becomes common conversation. It is so analytical, so theoretical that it's just very difficult. Not to mention pessimistic. But uh, I think historical events of the last several years have all of a sudden created the entree. For these ideologies to enter into, I mean, the conversation of 16-year-olds. Yeah, it's remarkable. I think uh, th there's no single cause for this. I mean, historically, I think 9-11 is something of a watershed in America for the, the relationship of uh, religion in general to the public square. Technology has massively uh, uh, liquefied Right. where we locate our identity. Uh, I, I raise it in the new book. I didn't deal with it in the old book, but in the new book, I, I play around with that phrase, he pledged allegiance to ISIS online. Yes. It fascinates yeah. me that we had in the, in the middle years of the last decade, young men, often from very affluent and comfortable and right. well-integrated backgrounds in British society, pledging allegiance to this online community that they clearly felt more affinity with than the people they sat next to in the classroom or at the football game or something like this. Um, we see national identities being being watered down. And also with critical theory, of course, while the, the jargon is rebarbative and often hard to understand, the ideas are pretty simple and they play to, to modern pieties. It's all about power and victimhood. It's all about the idea that if somebody has something, then somebody else has been deprived of it. These are simple ideas that, that appeal to the common right. sense virtues of the modern person. So critical theory has a kind of moral advantage there. But I'm like you. I mean, if you told me that I regard gender theory as the least plausible branch of continental right. philosophy, and yet it's the one that that has come even more than critical race theory, I think, to dominate modern right. society. And it's totally implausible and bizarre. And yet, yeah, I read an article yesterday on, and on the NBC website yeah. about how we should celebrate Leah Thomas, the trans swimmer, in the same way that Jackie Robinson was celebrated 70, 80 years ago. As if there's any real comparison. The right. fact that somebody could write that right. and get away with it is stunning, I think, and, and a well, real impact on modern society. Indeed. I will just say that uh, getting away with it is more 
difficult than getting it run at NBC. Um, <laughs> because uh, if you look at the crowd at the NCAA uh, competition, that crowd was not celebrating uh, Leah Thomas uh, coming in first. Uh, as a matter of fact, stood and overwhelmingly applauded uh, the woman who came in second. Yeah, I think that what we're beginning to see on the trans issue, of course, is that the, the trans issue, unlike other issues, can impinge yes. very directly on ordinary people's lives, bathrooms, sports, things like this. And we're beginning yes. to see that a lot of the the way this theoretical stuff has been pushed, it's been by elites, by intellectuals and cultural elites. For the man and woman in the street, this pinches and they're going to cry out with pain as it pinches. And that's what we're beginning to see. And that actually for me is, is a sign of encouragement at this point. It's possible that we could see some kind of pushback against this stuff in, in the near future. I hope so. I'm yeah, we are seeing the pushback, but I want to make a note about that because the pushback right now is not, hey, this entire ideology is insane. It is instead, we ought to protect women's sports. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, one of the things I'm, I'm writing about right now is the fact that the actual terrain of controversy is extremely narrow. And you even have people, whether it's Billie Jean King or uh, Martina Navratilova, who and both of them openly lesbian in identity. And, and none of them are saying, look, we need to actually recover a sane sexual morality and an understanding of, of uh, ontology here. They're just saying, hey, let's carve out from the revolution. Let's just carve out. Uh, women's sports. One other thing I'll just simply point out is that I'd love to bring, you know, Aristotle into the room for just a moment. So, you know, don't, don't, don't bring in, you know, uh, so, some uh, Christian, uh, you know, Orthodox figure. Don't bring John Calvin in. Let's just bring Aristotle in. And Aristotle's first statement is going to be, you can't get babies out of this. Yeah. Yes. I mean, human <laughs> beings have a natural telos right. and a natural end. Our bodies are built to fit together in certain ways and not right. in others and to produce certain results and not others. So, uh, I mean, what you really see again with the the, the tea stuff is, is this dramatic revolt against nature. And J.K. Rowling, I would actually say J.K. Rowling is certainly, she's engaging on a broader front than women's sports. She's pointing to the importance of biology in right. how one defines women. And I think, you know, uh, kudos to her. And yes, that's pointing us back to the basic essentialism that marks Aristotle. And, and I think is, pardon the pun, essentially true. Uh, we no, need to get yeah. back to that. Amen to that. Well, rarely uh, are you corrected by someone who says you're overly optimistic. <laughs> but uh, overly hopeful. But I'm I'm going I'm going to suggest you are when it comes to J.K. Rowling because it, it, the thing is is that she she wants the identity politics. She wants to be very clear. She affirms all the identity politics of L and G and 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 B, so to speak. But just wants to stop at T. And and yeah. I, I know you agree with this. It's impossible to stop the letters coming. Yeah, I, I think bottom line on that front is uh, a feminism that asserts the importance of the physical body 
cannot be, for example, a pro-choice feminism. I was talking about this at Grove last night, that people like J.K. Rowling are trying to hold something of an unstable middle on this. My hope is that the logic of their position will start to to work through in the way they're thinking. But maybe I am too optimistic. Uh, I wear it as a badge of honor that somebody's finally criticizing me. You you can at least say that one time in your life thus far, you have faced that uh, that criticism. Yeah. But, you know, uh, it is very interesting just in the in the in the political sphere and uh, where where uh, policy is being hammered out. You've got a clear geographical distinction in the United States. You've got a clear political distinction in the United States. You've got uh, you, you've got an awakening taking place. Uh, you know, politically, the big question or sociologically is whether that's coming too late to make any difference. But the reality is that with the T. You know, reality, reality itself is just unbending. It's just it, yeah. it's it's hard to get over. Yeah. I mean, nature is going to bite back. And I'm again at the risk of sounding too optimistic here. Uh, I am. I think that what we're going to see maybe 50, 60 years down the line will be lots of lawsuits being brought by yeah. kids who are used as chemistry sets by doctors. Uh, with the connivance of their parents and the support of insurance companies. Those kids who were sterilized at 9, 10, 11, 12, had their brains fried with alien hormones, those kids are going to grow up to have miserable and catastrophic lives. And I think they will sue the people who caused those. And at that point, one may see... Well, one will see a nature biting back and one may actually see some kind of pulling back from the abyss on the trans issue because, you know, it's America. Once you start getting catastrophically high lawsuits being settled, you can expect to see changes in attitude at a corporate level taking place. So I think on the T, it it could well end up in the lawsuits. The, The tragedy, Al, is that we're only going to get there after incalculable human suffering. Right. It's not uh, going to be because sadly, one or two kids have suffered yes. this way. It's going to be hundreds or thousands of them. Yes. And sadly, I don't think we're going to have to wait 30 or 40 years from that. I, 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 I think uh, it's, it's much, much faster than that, because I think there are an awful lot of uh, young people already indicating in their 20s and 30s um, a dissatisfaction. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that dissatisfaction will not stay vague. Yeah. Um, it. it we, and, and not to mention, we have no idea the long-term medical consequences, but, you know, logic itself says they have to be yeah. very significant. Yeah. And that's why I think this is, a, this is an issue about protecting children. Uh, people keep saying, well, why do you keep writing on this stuff? Are you obsessed with it? Well, maybe I am. But I think one of the reasons I write about it is this. If, if you're a 25-year-old and you want to transition from being a man to being a woman, I, I think that's a ridiculous thing to do. But if you want to spend your money or your insurance on that, do it. If it's a seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old, it's happening to. I think we have a duty as a society to protect confused kids from themselves. And that's why I think this, the T issue is a, it should be a pressing concern to all Christians. It should yeah. be like abortion, it should be something that we feel the need to speak out on, to become unpopular over, to take hits over, because it's about protecting the weak, the confused, and the innocent. That's right. Behind this is, uh, is a line of thinking, and that thinking is embodied in thinkers. So let's name some names. Uh, you know, as we're thinking about this, you have the, the hermeneutics of suspicion, Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, Darwin, uh, all that's still here. You have the triumph of the therapeutic, 
everyone from you know Freud, Maslow, Rogers, uh, on and on. Um, you have the Frankfurt School. You've got critical theorists, uh, but eventually you end up with Oprah. Yeah. Yes, as a mutual friend, uh, Andrew Walker yes. has pointed out recently. Yeah, I, I mean, the obvious objection to the intellectual genealogy is, well, that's great, but nobody reads these people. How do these, you know, does the man in the right. street, the woman in the street, they don't read Marx, they don't read Freud. So how on earth do they come to hold these, these views? And I think the answer is they percolate down through pop culture. Right. Uh, Oprah's view of, of, of life as well whatever works for you and doesn't hurt somebody else, do it. Be whoever you want to be. As long as you're not hurting somebody else, be happy. Every commercial you look at on the TV tells you that you are the center of the universe and you have the power to make yourself happy by reinventing yourself, by buying this product or buying that product. Every soap opera, every sitcom you watch sends the message that human satisfaction is ultimately found in in sexual satisfaction and you have a right to that so pop culture is absolutely critical and as it plays out now among young people of course we're not even talking about the main tv networks youtube tiktok these are the things that are shaping the minds of of uh, of young kids uh, today uh, you have this cacophony of voices all pressing basically the same message you are the center of the universe your happiness happiness is paramount don't let anybody else tell you otherwise and here's how to achieve it i wrote an article about 20 years ago entitled the oprahfication of america and uh, and frankly she was more influential then than she is now uh, but but the point is that you can't have the situation we we face now without figures like Oprah. And I want to mention two things. Um, Number one, Oprah shamed parents uh, if they were at all resistant to the uh, gender transition of their children. She's the first person I know who brought on, and again, just the bizarre nature, but she brought on uh, children who were gender confused, uh, you know, having, experiencing gender dysphoria, claiming that uh, they were a, a girl inside a boy's body or vice versa. And she would publicly shame parents who uh, who, who were not going to facilitate uh, this uh, this transition. The second big thing was that I really blame her for the formulation, which at least she popularized, which is your truth. And she began using it in virtually every single conversation. She would say, tell me your truth. And then when there were big issues of public controversy, she would actually more or less have people on both sides telling their truth. The the basic notion of objective truth had completely disappeared. Yeah, yeah. It's purely therapeutic at that point. What she really means is tell me what works for you. Tell me what makes you happy. Tell me what floats your boat. And that's, again, that's pervasive in society. And and you and I have talked about this in the past. That's that's deep within the heart of the church as well these days. It's right. not an us and them thing. We are all somewhat affected by this. Uh, it's the very air that we breathe in in Western and particularly affluent Western right. culture today. This this subjectification of truth and the reduction of it to that which works therapeutically, huge problem, and is alive and well within the church the same as it is within wider society. Yeah, it'll tempt you to some Marxist thoughts, actually. I say that tongue-in-cheek, uh, yes. in, in the sense that uh, that Marx made fun 
of the uh, the upper class, uh, the aristocracy in in Britain and uh, to a limited extent in Europe, but uh, for their their preoccupations and their self centeredness and all the rest. But now those are the best sellers uh, for Middle America. You know, and uh, the commodification of the self has, has now pretty much come full bloom. Yes. And of course, as, as Christians, we can see why that would take place, because that is, in some sense, is the essence of the fall. Right. Uh, Eve, in taking, in taking the fruit, her desire is to be like God. And in breaking the rules, she sets herself above the rules. That, that impulse to, to transgression and that impulse to, to wanting to feel like God is deep within the, the fallen human psyche. Now, I've known you for a long time, and a part of the fun of reading uh, a friend's book is that you see a lot of conversations, a lot of thoughts, a lot of background, a lot of common reading uh, in this. But you also uh, pick some personal fights in this book. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a sense in which uh, you, you write with a background in the UK, a background, as you mentioned, the grammar school education. I don't know that most American listeners know what that is. That's a that's a fairly elite education, but still in the public sphere. Sort of, yeah. They're, they're state-funded schools, but you, you, in my day, you took a test age 11, and if you passed, right. you went to the grammar school. And they you were academic. academic subjects. If you failed, you went to what we call the secondary modern, and you learned practical subjects. Right. Uh, highly controversial, but it was, ironically, dis- the system was largely dismantled by the Labour Party, but it was one of the greatest ways of rising from the working class, the middle class ever invented in Britain. It was uh, a real agent of uh, what I would describe as true diversity. It it, it allowed you to rise through, through academic effort. Yeah. But you end up fearing the working classes and hating the upper classes. That's what it, that's the psychology of the grammar school boy. I I, I can see it. And, uh, and, and so you uh, you notice some things like uh, the influence of someone like an Oscar Wilde. Yeah. I mean, so talk, talk, talk about that, because I mean, the, the most Americans probably recognize the name and uh, maybe they see a quip or a quote to Oscar Wilde. But in retrospect, I think he was a lot more important in cultural transformation than people think. Yes, he's a real harbinger of the modern day. And Oscar Wilde is well known, perhaps most famous as the author of Picture of Dorian Gray, but he was also right. uh, wrote a lot of witty plays, and he was a very witty figure himself. Uh, I've often been asked over the years when I when I teach Nietzsche in the humanities class, you know, what, what does Nietzsche's Superman look like? And of course, the popular image is that you know Nietzsche's Superman is a kind of Nazi stormtrooper. That because right. of the the association of the popular mind between Nietzsche and Nazism. Uh, actually, Nietzsche's Superman is is more of an artist. And I think Oscar Wilde fits the bill quite well. Why? Well, Oscar Wilde is is the first great self-inventor in some ways. He's a transgressive person. Uh, if you show him a sexual law, he goes to break it. Those Anybody who knows the history of Oscar Wilde will know oh, that yeah. it comes to a tragic end when he's prosecuted for, for homosexual uh, activity. He's sent to prison uh, for, for being a homosexual. And it, it breaks him in the public image and it breaks him physically. But his whole life was a public performance. Uh, he was he was his own greatest work of art. Right. There's a sense in which he captures the the essence of our age because we live in an age now where 
everybody is constantly living their life as a public performance on on social media we can be whoever we want to be uh, we constantly live our lives i'm thinking generally here uh, in transgressive ways if anything marks the modern age it's the dramatic transgression of traditional sexual mores well wild was doing that in the in the 1890s when it was risky and dangerous before it became popular and cool no dangerous uh, enough that he was a, a broken man in yeah. prison uh, he was, and, and he could have avoided that prosecution, but thought he was clever enough to beat it. He was, Oscar Wilde had that unfortunate ability uh, to think always of himself as the cleverest man in the room. And generally he was, but in a court of law, no, uh, Sir Edward Carson, I think, proved himself yeah. to be a little cleverer at law. So, uh, yeah, he's a fascinating figure. And he's also the man who... He's very, one could describe him as immoral, but it might be more accurate to call him amoral. Right. In that he makes yeah. this comment about the picture of Dorian Gray, where somebody criticizes the book for being immoral. And he makes the comment, he says, there are no such things as immoral books. Books are either well-written or badly written. Right. That is all. Right. Ethics being reduced to pure aesthetics at that point. So, yeah. Between finishing the big book and finishing the smaller book, Oscar Wilde became a fascinating figure to me because I'm thinking, you know, he is a sophisticated example of the philosophy of, of Oprah world. Yes. He's, he's yeah. a sophisticated modern. Well, again, it's fascinating that uh, we have, you know, there's uh, yeah, minds watching the, the society change, the civilization morph, are drawn to some of the same figures. I, I was drawn to Oscar Wilde years ago. Uh, because of the observation that he is now one of the most safely quotable individuals uh, of English letters. Um, and, and that could only happen if the society actually moved his way. <laughs> and, you know, uh, because even at the end of Oscar Wilde's life, you would not think that, uh, you know, it would be. I mean, you could you could picture a president of the United States quoting Oscar Wilde and, and getting away with it uh, simply, simply because he's now no longer considered so transgressive. Yeah, he's become uh, a, a member of the establishment. And again, that's part of, of the world in which we live. And it's perhaps particularly obvious in Britain because we have an honor system that we can right. compare who gets honors today with who, get, who got right. honors 100 years ago. When you look at the British establishment today, Sir Elton John, Sir Rod Stewart. I, I, I thought I knew uh, where you were going there. Yes, yes. So Mick Jagger. I remember the year Roger Scruton, the great English philosopher, got uh, yeah. a knighthood. I remember calling Rusty Reno, editor first thing, saying, great news, Sir Roger Scruton. He's got a knighthood. I looked further down the list and I saw, oh, Rod yeah. Stewart's got a knighthood as well. And yes. Rusty's comment to me was, well, let's just say it's a, a diluted brand, shall we? Yes. But the fact that yeah. the, the leaders of the, the anti-establishment cultural revolution in Britain of the 1960s are now knights of the realm, speaks volumes about yeah. the way in which the establishment has changed. And as you point to, the, the tastes, the tolerances, the things that society affirms and valorizes have dramatically changed as well. There are limits to this. And again, something I'm really watching right now and, uh, and uh, talking about, uh, just to say the name Hugh Hefner. Oh, yeah. So Hugh Hefner was uh, one of the 
commercial, but also ideological profits of sexual liberation. And of course, you talk about a life, you know, self-invented and lived out artificially on the stage. I mean, he wore pajamas all day and, you know, just surrounded himself with Playboy bunnies and a Playboy mansion, had a Playboy jet, you know, it was like Batman with the Batmobile. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but all of a sudden now, uh, Hugh Hefner's on the wrong side of history. You know, a major, uh, you know, film project coming out, basically uh, making very clear that uh, he was abusive of women and uh, that he had, uh, he, 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 I mean, here's a shock, behave badly. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those, is this really a shock moments when I read that kind of stuff? And I'm thinking, you know, you get a feel when you, when I'm reading the accounts in the secular press of, of this at the moment, you get a feeling that there's a sort of, you know, who could possibly have seen this coming? Well, I want to say a lot of Christian leaders saw it coming. Right. A lot of feminists saw it coming. Absolutely. Uh, it was the, the Hollywood elite who covered right. for him. And, you know, I'd say a That's similar right. thing with Roman Polanski. You know, for years we had yes. this ghastly speeches being made at the Oscars about how unfortunate poor old Roman Polanski was not being able to come to the United States because he didn't want to serve his time for having raped a 13-year-old girl. And you had the Hollywood great and the good parading on this. Not one of them. Suddenly, guess what? Child rape is no longer acceptable. Who would have thought of that? Who could have seen that? Well, the thing is, everybody saw it, could have seen it coming, except for the people who presume to dictate the tastes of the culture to us. So Hugh Hefner is no surprise. I, I, I confess actually to being a little surprised at the extremity of his depravity. Uh, I read one article on what the, uh, the documentary was going to reveal, and I was, I was struck at the extremity of his depravity, but it did not surprise me. No, and it uh, couldn't be, it wasn't hidden. And, and again, uh, the, the, the surprise is that you have a society uh, made up of, uh, of uh, influencers and elites who certainly knew all of this, yeah. but now have to be, they're all going to have to sign up on the right manifesto or uh, or they're going to lose their jobs. And, and yeah. by the way, I didn't bring up Roman Polanski, but uh, the amazing thing is he is still received in some of the most elite circles in, in Europe. Yes. I mean, it's... It's what George Orwell called the benefit of clergy, going back to the old medieval practice that if you committed a crime in, in England as a clergyman, you, you suffered less than an ordinary person who committed the crime. It's sort of counterintuitive, really. But Orwell is wrestling in, in, a, in, a, in a review of the, bio, the autobiography of Salvador Dali. And why is this disgusting pervert treated like a genius by so many people? And he comes to the conclusion that the artistic class enjoy benefit of clergy. If you're an artist, if you belong to that artistic elite, then you will be pardoned for sins that will destroy the careers of other lesser mortals. And we see that all around us. Uh, uh, a, a tweet by an 18-year-old that was ill-advised seven years ago can damage their career today. Meryl Streep can be an apologist for Roman Polanski for years. Nobody mentions that now. That's exactly so, and. and yeah, more than an apology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so it is fascinating to see how you have a Jeffrey Epstein in all of his horror. Yeah. Uh, rightly condemned by all people. And yet there are people who are very much engaged with very similar activities who are still showing up in credits. Yeah. Yes. It's 
It is very interesting and disturbing that that's the case. And I think it's, it, it speaks volumes about who runs our culture and who sees themselves as having the authority to decide who is tasteful and who is distasteful right. at any given point in time. So you wrote this book as a as a successor, and I understand just as you've related. And and by the way, it's a it's a it's it's a brilliant pricey, as as you say. It's a it's actually a brilliant introduction to these ideas. I think it'll be very helpful. I hope it will be useful in schools and in churches. But I, th- I think it's also something that uh, that the uh, average uh, you know well informed Christian reader can pick up and and uh, actually uh, uh, work through to great profit. Uh, but this cannot be the end or to be Churchillian. This cannot even be the beginning <laughs> of the end. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, 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 this is a project that's pointing you towards something else. Yeah, well, uh, partly uh, I hope it's pointing towards a project that, that isn't just me. What I would love, I would love to see practical theologians. I would love to see men involved in in, in day-to-day nuts and bolts of youth ministry, Christian ministry, uh, picking up the mantle, using the analysis I've given and coming up with how can I build on this to produce practical uh, ways of addressing the problems as they manifest themselves in, in, in my world. So I'm hoping it provides a foundation for that. For me, uh, uh, my next project is, uh, it's actually for Broadman and Holman. They've asked me if I would do a, a sort of rise and triumph of the modern self, a critical theory that can be used yeah. uh, in seminary classes and maybe upper level uh, liberal arts classes to help Christian students think through the issues of critical theory. So that's where I'm going next. And, and it connects, I think, to this, the, these earlier books precisely because, as we mentioned earlier, you know, gender, th- you know, whatever is right. the middle term is, is somewhat arbitrary. Gender theory, race theory, whatever. The logic of critical theory remains the same. The basic mathematical formula remains the same. And it's important to understand the, the dynamics of that in order to be able to relate to it as a Christian, I think. Yeah, one of the most irritating uh, aspects of the current uh, conversation in the culture is, is the dishonesty. So, for instance, uh, uh, whether uh, the scene was uh, Virginia's gubernatorial election or uh, the confirmation hearings uh, for uh, a justice of the United States Supreme Court, the uh, the feint is to say critical theory is just a it's just an academic theory. It's not taught to children. You know, I, I don't cite it in my work, you know, et cetera. And, and what is being just denied there and, and presented as a lie is the fact that it has now become the basic intellectual superstructure of, uh, of the modern American. And, uh, well, I say it's, it's worse than it's, it's a broader problem than America, but of the American academic superstructure. Yeah, I mean, think about what's being taught about gender to kids in school. No, right. I, I'm I'm assuming that uh, elementary school teachers are not uh, ascribing Judith Butler to five-year-olds. They're not necessarily right. handing out the great texts of gender theory. But as soon as you detach gender from biological sex, as soon as you allow that there's a spectrum of genders, you're teaching the fruits of gender theory there. You may not be teaching the, the basic principles. You may not be actually doing it as well or in as sophisticated a fashion as a real gender theorist would, but you are dependent upon gender theory. Uh, and it's the same with, with race as well. The other uh, feint, of course, in, in all of this is whoever criticizes these theories, by definition, does not understand them. 
that critical theory uh, surrounds itself with a certain Gnostic mystique, whereby any criticism is obviously misplaced. It's obviously motivated by racism or misogyny or something like that. And that's the other strategy you're up against. Carl, I uh, I wanted to have this conversation because I think uh, after the rise and fall of the modern self, Strange New World really is an important book. But I also know you had to put a lot of work into this. Why this particular project? Really, this was the project all along, I think. I had to do the big book. I'm a reform- as you know, I'm a Reformation guy by background. Right. I had to do the big book in order to work through the ideas myself and also to, to establish my credibility to speak on these things. The shorter book is the one that I hope will have an impact on the church. I, I don't expect the hard-pressed homeschooling mum to be able to read the big book. I don't expect the hard-pressed pastoral elder to be able to read the big book. The short book, I think, is is one that should be easily digestible by by anybody, even by teenagers. I gave a copy to a colleague at work today and is looking for something to read with her daughter on these issues. I think even teenagers should be able to read this, thoughtful teenagers, and get something out of it. So the purpose of this book was really to get the message about the nature of the sexual revolution, where it's come from, how it's shaping us and where it might be going to. I wanted to get into the hands of as many people as possible. And that's what I hope the short book does. Well, I, uh, I will hope that many teenagers will read it. It will tell me uh, that uh, something, something important is taking place. And uh, I, I was speaking to a group of teenagers the other day. And uh, you can tell a teenager's reading ahead when they can't pronounce what they're reading. And I, I, I had like a 15 or 16 year old young man come up to me and say, man, he said, I've been reading some of this stuff by Nezich. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, indeed you cover, uh, Nezich and many others. And I'm, I'm glad yeah. to, uh, I'm <laughs> Fru- glad given fruit and company. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, but I was glad to be able to tell him this book is coming out, and 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 uh, it, I, I greet it with enthusiasm, and I, and I thank you for it. I want to ask you in that light one final question, and that is, you teach uh, college students, you look at uh, a bunch of eighteen to twenty two year olds uh, there at Grove City College. We have the same the, the the same privilege here at Boyce College, and then with with seminary students, I find real reason for hope. I I, I find in them a willingness to push back on these. Uh, ridiculous and poisonous ideas. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I spoke last night to a pro-life group on campus at Grove to a reasonably full lecture theater on a Monday evening where nobody got extra credit. And we had great discussion afterwards. Now, boy students, Grove students, these are not a representative slice of of 18 to 22 year olds in the United States. But I think what I'm seeing at a place like Grove is a more self-conscious kind of Christian conservative faith emerging than perhaps was the case 20, 30 years ago. So like you, I'm encouraged by the the standard of student, by the thoughtfulness I see, by the the willingness to to realize, yeah, we've got challenges coming and we want to prepare ourselves to meet them. So uh, nothing actually encourages me more at the moment than than the classroom at Grove. You get very depressed when you read the news headlines, when you speak to people after church about the agonies they're going through in their own lives uh, relative to stuff from the sexual revolution. But the thing that encourages me most are the 18 to 22 year olds that I have the privilege to teach at Grove. Yeah, I tell people if you if you feel depressed, just come and be with these, you know, college age students who are deeply committed Christians, and you're going to understand 
that uh, the adversary culture does not own that entire generation. Yeah, yeah. And there is still the potential for pushback. Yeah, God still has his people, uh, and the church will prevail. Well, Carl, once again, I'm very thankful for you, thankful for this book, and uh, just keep them coming, and uh, you keep writing them, and uh, we'll keep talking about them. (laughs) Thanks very much, Al. It's been lovely to be on. God bless you. Many thanks to my guest, Carl Truman, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com. Just look under the tab, Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. I'm Albert Muller. Until next time, keep thinking. Keep thinking.